0: This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark.
1: The Book of Psalms was once not only a collection of songs of Israel, but it was also the songbook of the Christian church. One of the parts of the Hebrew scriptures most frequently quoted in the New Testament is Psalm 110. The early church sang the psalms, the medieval church sang the psalms, the eastern church sang the psalms, and the western church sang the psalms. In the 16th and 17th centuries, the Reformed churches and her theologians taught God's people to sing the psalms in public worship, in their own language. Until very recently, Christians were a psalm-singing people, particularly in the Reformed tradition. In the modern period, however, Christians have either struggled with the Psalter, ignored it, or forgotten about it. Today, it is not uncommon to meet Christian young people who have never sung a psalm in their Christian life, not even Psalm 23 or Psalm 100. Judd Fesco has published a new volume on the first eight psalms, The Songs of a Suffering King, the Grand Christ Hymn of Psalms 1 through 8. He is academic dean and professor of systematic theology and historical theology at Westminster Seminary, California. He's author of several other books, and they're all available at... The Bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, John, and welcome back to Office Hours. Hi, Scott. Good to be here. What was the genesis of this book?
2: Well, I had originally been preaching a sermon series uh, through the Book of Psalms, but as you know, and I suspect all of our listeners know, the Book of Psalms is the biggest in terms of chapter numbers and perhaps even word count, uh, biggest book of the Bible. And so I took off the first section, which was Book 1 of the Psalter, which is Psalms 1 through 41. But as I was preaching it, I noticed that uh, you know there's a pattern there in terms of a, uh, a specific arrangement of the different psalms that are there there that produce a pattern, one that begins at a high point, has a few dips and valleys in between, and then once again surfaces with another high point, a climax upon which it ends. And that's a pattern that you can see throughout the Psalter, but there's a smaller version of that same pattern within the first
1: eight Psalms. You were preaching through the Psalms. You were doing that for a reason. Why did you choose to preach through the Psalms?
2: Well, I think as you've noted in your introduction to this episode, the Psalms were once quite common in the worship of the Church, especially even within the Reformed Church, but I think that many people have become unfamiliar with the Psalms, and so it was my hope and effort that as I preached through the Psalms, we would not only hopefully understand how Christ is organically connected to them, but that we would also either learn for the first time or perhaps refamiliarize ourselves with these Psalms so that we could sing them in worship. I think that a lot of people, at least in terms of reading their Bibles, are familiar with, say, Psalm 2, maybe Psalm 110, maybe Psalm 150, because it's the last one. But there's a lot of real estate in between those psalms that a lot of people are unfamiliar with, so I thought it would be helpful that we would not only learn the psalms, but as I preach through these various psalms, we would conclude the worship service by singing that metrical version of the particular psalm that we had just heard, read, and preached.
1: How did that go, by the way, the singing of the metrical setting of the psalm?
2: I think overall it went well. There were always a psalm or two that maybe was a little bit more difficult, not so much because of the metrical version, but just because of the unfamiliar tune that accompanied it. But I think that uh, the more we went through it, I think people were appreciative of it, you know, not only singing about things that they might not ordinarily sing about, but uh, I think in worship there's often a tendency in the church that people want to be happy, they want to sing uplifting things, and I think that's fine and that's a legitimate expression of worship, but there are also a lot of people who perhaps don't feel... Like singing upbeat things because they're depressed or they're sad or they're struggling with a lack of joy because of persecution or trial. And there are many psalms that are written precisely for that Type of experience in the Christian life, so that when David is being oppressed by his foes, there's a sense which we can say there's a song for that. There's a, there's a psalm for that uh, where we can receive assurance and comfort in the midst of those difficult circumstances.
1: Like fiddler on the roof, mm-hmm. you know, there's a blessing for everything. There's a psalm mm-hmm. that literally addresses almost every yes. aspect of the human. Condition. Absolutely. Which, in contrast to hymnody, mm-hmm. hymnody tends to be perhaps a little bit more limited. And the Psalter also has the advantage mm-hmm. of being, first of all, God's Word, which is inspired and inerrant, and secondly, rooted mm-hmm. oftentimes in the history mm-hmm. of salvation. In other words, in the history of God's saving acts. What's the advantage of Mm -hmm. God's people gathered together in public worship of singing and reciting in song the history of God's salvation of his people?
2: Well, I think there's a certain pedagogical benefit in that as you sing these words from the scriptures, you not only repeat God's mighty acts to God in praise, but there's a sense in which you are singing serenading, if you will, one another in the church as you tell each other about God's mighty acts. In the same way that somebody might uh, tell a good story to his friends because it has entertaining value or because it's inspiring, Uh, I think more specifically as we sing, we are uh, telling each other in the body of Christ about God's mighty acts. But I think there's also another benefit in that, um, you know, I think it was Calvin who said that uh, the Psalms are essentially prayers that we sing. And I I think so often we find a struggle in not knowing precisely how to pray in various circumstances. And much like an infant will learn how to speak to his parents or her parents by repeating words back that the parents say to them, there is a sense in which we can say that God speaks his word to us and we repeat it back to him. And in that way, we learn how to speak to God. We learn how to pray to him. We learn how to sing praises to him, as we mentioned before, on all sorts of occasions, not just those times of blessing, but those times of difficulty and trial.
1: So the Psalter also is, we could say, God's prayer book yes. in Scripture.
2: Absolutely, yeah. In fact, there's a book written by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the book of Psalms, the prayer book of the Bible. Uh, and it's a short little work, but it's uh, filled with a number of insights uh, to that effect.
0: You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California let's talk a little bit about your own experience with the Psalter. You haven't always been Reformed, and you
1: consciously, intentionally became a Reformed Christian and then a Reformed minister. Uh And as you've made that transition, how have you also transitioned relative to the Psalms and the Psalter and your experience of it?
2: I think that at least in the broader evangelical church, and I certainly don't want to level a blanket statement about every expression of the broader evangelical church, but for the most part, they're, you know, most of the church, or at least good portions of it, use praise choruses. And, you know, I sang them when I was in my high school youth group, as perhaps many do now or many have done in the past. And I found it interesting that I think it was perhaps 20, 25 years later, after I'd left my youth group, I was sitting in church, and I won't say where I was, but I was in a Naples. Park Church, and my wife and I were visiting, and we started singing. And my wife asked me, "Well, why aren't you looking at the words?" And I said, "Because I used to sing this song in youth group, and I knew it from all the way back then. And at the time when I was a youth, I didn't think too much of the words. But as an adult, as hopefully somebody that has spiritually matured in the last 25 years, I thought, uh, as I sang those words again as an adult, that the words were a little bit trite, perhaps a little bit overly repetitive, and you know, perhaps a little shallow. I certainly don't say those things." in any way to try to belittle what I suspect are heartfelt uh, expressions of worship on the part of, you know, these Reformed Christians. But on the other hand, uh, as I entered into the Reformed faith, learned a little bit more about the regulative principle of worship, I found that uh, there was a greater depth in worship, not only in what I would hope would be scripturally informed hymns, that is, you know, not all hymns are good, there's some really bad ones out there, but even more so to say that, uh, you know, there are psalms in the scriptures that... I found out, wow, you can sing these. And for the most part, for the bulk of my Christian life, I just assumed that the book of Psalms was something that you read, not realizing that it was something that, you know, you could sing. And while we could say that we've perhaps lost the original tunes that uh, were used to sing these in the past. We still have a number of wonderful tunes that have been wedded to the, uh, to the Psalms that make them beneficial, appropriate, and uh, really wonderful expressions of worship that can be used in worship and should be used in worship.
1: And we believe in Bible translation, right? Mm-hmm. So if sure. we can, uh, I think the Apostle Paul indicates that in First Corinthians 14. So to the degree we can legitimately translate God's word into the language of the people, mm-hmm. and that language is a circumstance, mm-hmm. right? It's not of the essence Correct. of the things. So to it would seem, at least we've always thought as Christians, that even though we don't know exactly what tunes were used in the canonical period of redemptive history, we can set mm-hmm. psalms, God's. Mm-hmm. Word and other portions of God's Word to appropriate tunes for use by God's people. I've heard that argument, that response, well, we don't know what tunes were used, therefore we can't sing them. And I've struggled to understand why people find that a compelling argument.
2: Yeah, I'm not sure, and I don't particularly find it all that compelling myself. I mean, as a point of curiosity and interest, it would be fascinating to find out what tunes accompanied these psalms originally. But one of the things, for example, uh, one of my colleagues has been working with with the Orthodox Presbyterian Church and the joint Psalter hymnal project with the United Reformed Churches in North America.
1: Yeah, that's Brian Estelle, yeah. right? And they just completed the Psalter, yeah. and it's it, the, so the Psalter portion of that yeah. work is done, and it looks like just an outstanding yeah. resource.
2: Absolutely. And what they've done is they take a special care to identify what's going on in the psalm. Is this a psalm of praise? Is this a psalm of lament? And what have you? And uh, to wed it to an appropriate tune. Because at least uh, given the number of psalter hymnals that are out there and psalters historically, there's some tunes that maybe were not as optimally wedded as they could be. And so they really went painstakingly through each psalm to identify the mood of the text, if you will, and to uh, wed it to an appropriate tune tune. So I'm really excited about that, and I think that it'll really open up the Psalter perhaps in a more accessible way than it has been in in past generations.
1: One of the things that you address in the book is where and how to sing psalms and how to recover psalm singing. You actually give some resources. So what are some concrete steps Mm -hmm. that someone can take, a congregation, a pastor, an elder, a member can take toward advancing and recovering the singing of psalms in public worship?
2: Yeah, I think the first step would be is either to conduct a Bible study or a sermon series on the book of Psalms. Uh, you could always do selections, or you could take it off in bite-sized chunks. There are five books of the Psalter. So, for example, I started with Psalms 1 through 41, and I think that's the first step, is to understand the Psalms. There are some admittedly difficult portions of the Psalms, and you have to understand what the author is saying, what David may be saying, and, and uh, also primarily as to how those passages of Scripture are connected to Christ? In what way is Christ organically and legitimately present in the text? So that's the first step. I think the second step then is to identify a good metrical version of the psalm, and until that Psalter hymnal project with the URC and the OPC comes out, there's certainly a number of psalm books that are out there, such as the the Book of Psalms for Singing, and once you're able to do that, uh, you can identify one. You can also find perhaps a number of different versions online, Uh, you know, the original 1650 Scottish Psalter hymnal, or Salter, I should say. And then thirdly, it, it all depends on how good you are with music. I took five years of piano lessons and can't play a lick and can't read any <laughs> notes. <laughs> it was horrible. So maybe it taught me discipline. That's what I can tell you. Sorry, mom and dad, I can't say much more than that. But there are a number of websites out there that have MP3 files of the various uh, tunes so that uh, if you're not musically inclined, that's okay. You can log on to one of these websites, find the tune. I believe it's Salter.com uh, is uh, paired with the the, uh, book of Psalms for singing, for example, and you can listen to the tunes and sing along with them so that whether it would be for private worship, family devotion, say, or perhaps worship in a, a Sunday school setting, or my hope would be is that people would study the Psalms, whether in sermon form or in Bible study, and then practice them and then sing them in worship. Uh, that is one of the, the chief goals of this little book is just a small little introduction to singing the Psalms uh, in worship because there's so much rich material there, and it's certainly to the glory of God and the edification of the church.
1: We're talking to John Fesco about his book, Songs of a Suffering King. And when we come back after this break... John, I want you to address this question. You treat the Psalms as a unit, and you treat them as something that point us to, as the title suggests, a suffering king. And yet Psalm 1 says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. When we come back, I'd like you to help us tie those two ideas together, the righteous man of Psalm 1 and how that gets us to the songs of a suffering king right after this. It's critical to get the gospel right because it is the good news of the work of Jesus Christ that is saving. W. Robert Godfrey for Westminster Seminary, California. Uh, we need the whole Bible. We need the whole message of the Bible. We need the help of the law. We need the crushing work of the law. We must never undervalue or underestimate the importance of the law. But it is what Christ did that is saving. And what by trusting in what Christ did, uh, we are saved. It is by receiving the gospel in faith that we are justified and all the other benefits and Fruits of Christ's work
0: flow out of that. Westminster Seminary, California. WSCAL.edu. 888 480 8474. Westminster Seminary, California. For Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. Well,
2: I think that one of the things that I wanted to do is show people that the Psalter has a very specific organizational design to it. I think that many people perhaps approach the Psalter thinking that it's just a theological grab bag of ideas and concepts. One of the illustrations that I use is that in the old days, when they had LPs and uh, and maybe cassettes,
1: you have to explain what those yeah, are. A
2: big vinyl disc that you put onto a record player with a needle. And so people would put, you know, these rock groups and singers and artists would put together albums and they would know that when you bought an album, unless you were buying the 45, a smaller vinyl (laughs) version.
1: And it had the 45 would just have one song on one side and another song on another side. Whereas the LP, the vinyl is the kids call it now, was a whole collection yeah. of, of songs.
2: Yeah, so these artists oftentimes would create a story, in a sense, where one song was meant to follow the other, and you couldn't really buy the one song without the other, and it was too much trouble to go to your record player and pick up the needle and replay the tune. There was no rewind on you know on the record player like that. And so a lot of artists resisted the push to go into the digital realm, to go to the iTunes, because they thought, you know, we've taken, and I've made this artistic product, and all you're going to do is lift off one or two songs out of the big picture that you're going to miss the whole story. And I think that that's really, I think, what a lot of people do with a psalter. They lift out one or two psalms here or there, and they fail to see the forest for the trees. They fail to see that there's an order. There's a specific editorial arrangement of the psalms so that, for example, you see this pattern in miniature in Psalms 1 through 8, and that you read Psalm 1. It kind of goes to a mountain peak in Psalm 2 where you have the enthronement of the Messiah. And you would think that on the heels of the enthronement of the Messiah, that it would just be onward and upward, uh, that he would conquer his foes, that they would submit, and that would be the end of it. But instead, there's a sense in which the Psalter takes a turn and drops back into the valley of darkness, where David, the anointed, the Messiah with a small m, is all of a sudden surrounded by his enemies. He's surrounded by his foes. He's being persecuted. He's suffering. Perhaps he's near death in some occasions. And you wonder, how can we go from the mountaintop of Psalm 2 to descend down into the valley of Psalms 3 through 7? But then subsequent to that, we arise out of that dark valley, if you will, back to the majesty of the mountaintop in Psalm 8. And so what I try to seek to do is to explain that, yes, Jesus has been anointed as the Messiah, but just as he was the Lord's anointed and suffered in the midst of his ministry and then was crucified and then was raised from the dead, there's that same pattern that you find in the Psalter that ultimately points us forward to Christ and explains how Jesus can be king, but also at the same time, a suffering king.
1: Now, Psalm 1, as I mentioned earlier, refers to the righteous man. And so, as Christians, we do at some point want to see Christ as that righteous man. And yet, somehow, that also refers to the Christian. How do we relate Christ and his Christian in Psalm 1? And how does learning how to read Psalm 1 help us to understand the Psalter?
2: Sure. I think that our initial reaction is we want to say that blessed is the man and we want to scratch out man and put in our name. And in one sense, I think that's perfectly natural. We're always trying to ask ourselves in what way does this ancient text apply to me in you know in the Christian life. So from that vantage point, I think that there's not anything wrong with that as to wondering how the scriptures relate to us. But on the other hand, I want to say that, you know, there's a context here and there's a specific message in view. And in particular, the Hebrew grammar doesn't allow this to be an interchangeable term, you know, and this is where I'd say that Off the top of my head, I don't remember which translations do this, but they'll say blessed are the people. And it's like, no, that's contrary to what the text says. The text is saying that blessed is the man. There is one man that is in view here. And in particular, it's saying blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers. In more technical terms, we're talking about a perfectly righteous man. And there are a number of uh, fantastic books that talk about this that Psalm one and two which back in the olden days, i.e. back in Jesus' day, there were no chapter divisions.
1: So they were a unit.
2: That's right. So Psalm 1 and 2 naturally flowed one from the other. And what you have is you have the righteous man who ascends to be enthroned in Psalm 2 as the Lord's anointed. So you have the perfectly righteous man. Now, people might say, well, wait a minute, that completely alienates me from this text. If this is all about Jesus, how can I receive the blessings that we see enumerated there in Psalm 1? And the answer is, is that the blessings that we see enumerated there in Psalm 1, that that we will not stand in the judgment and that we, you know, correlatively will be a part of the congregation of the righteous and that the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but that the path of the wicked will perish. It's that when we take refuge in Christ, all of those blessings that Christ has secured for us become ours. And that's in particular when you see that at the end of Psalm 2, where it says, Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way Notice Psalm 1, verse 6, but the way of the wicked will perish. Here the psalmist is invoking this idea of the way. If you embrace Christ, then all of the blessings that he secures becomes yours. Whereas if you don't and you go off with the wicked, well, then you will perish in the way. So it's primarily about Christ, and we receive those blessings when we seek him and are joined to him by faith.
1: I know you know the 17th century context, and You're doubtless aware that Psalm 2 was read then and is still read by at least some Reformed Christians today to refer to earthly kings recognizing, as it is said, the crown rights of King Jesus and as an expression of his mediatorial kingship over the nations. What do you think of that reading of Psalm 2?
2: Well, I think it's important for us to recognize that Jesus is certainly King of Kings and Lord of Lords, but there are some important distinctions. For example, the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Westminster Divines really wanted to highlight. For example, it says in chapter 25, in its definition of the visible church, that uh, the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ is the visible church. Now, what's interesting is that when you look at the chapter on the civil magistrate in chapter 23, the Westminster Divines originally, when they were writing that chapter, I believe it was Galatians. Lesby, stood up and moved that they would delete the word Christ in three different places in that chapter and replace it with the word God, so that it specifically reads that God is over the civil magistrate, which means that Christ, or the Son of God, in his capacity as being equal with the other members of the Trinity, rules over the creation providentially. You know, So in that sense, according to his divinity, he is sovereign over the cosmos. But when we're talking specifically about the mediatorial reign of Christ over the church, that gets very narrowly defined as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that you can have kings per se, or magistrates, or politicians, at whatever word we want to use, that don't necessarily bow the knee to Christ per se, but that does not somehow negate their authority. As Paul, for example, would tell us in Romans 13, we owe subjection to the authorities, regardless of what the disposition of their heart is. Or as Jesus says, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God's.
0: You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. And the Caesars, when Jesus spoke and when Paul wrote Romans 13,
1: were not believers. Right. They were not acknowledging crown rights of King Jesus. Right. Nero was probably 20 years old when Paul wrote that chapter, Mm -hmm. and he was already known as a moral reprobate. He shocked the conscience of pagan Romans. And nevertheless, Paul said that he is still Mm -hmm. God's minister, and it's not conditioned on his recognition of Christ. Psalm 3 is a psalm of hope, at least as you walk us through it. We can't go through all the psalms, but I thought it would be helpful to think about that theme because you do work with that at some length. Where did David find hope?
2: You know, I think that that's one of the most important things that we could maybe draw upon when we look at times of suffering or trial is that I think we can often descend into a spiral of despair because we are troubled, we're persecuted, or we're suffering to one degree or another. And David finds himself in those types of circumstances and that he's suffering because he's being persecuted by his own son, Absalom, who was trying to execute a coup d'etat and at the same time kill him because that's what would gain him the throne permanently. And so, you know, you see this when David could have relied upon his retinue of bodyguards or his uh, soldiers who were loyal to him and put his hope in them. But I think he realized and knew, as the psalm tells us, that in the end, he always turned to the Lord, no matter how grim or dark the circumstance may be. And uh, you see this in Psalm 3, verse 3, But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. So, you know, he took refuge in Yahweh. And I think that you see this in writ large, so to speak, that when you see Christ, for example, suffering on the cross, uh, he cries out that cry of dereliction, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that even in the midst of his suffering, he doesn't somehow disown God or say, you know, Allah, Job's wife, why don't you curse God and die? He still says it's my God. And he's crying out to him in his depths. so that I think Jesus... But David as well knew that even in the depths of darkness, that God was still there watching over and protecting him. And not only that, but, you know, say, for example, in Psalm 3, where David knew that God would rise up and righteously judge the wicked. If you look at the later Psalms, I think David tempers his cries of judgment with his own cries for mercy upon the wicked, as well as even his cries for seeking the forgiveness of his own sin. But in this particular case, he says, Arise, O Lord, verse 7, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek and you break the teeth of the wicked. That imagery seems a bit blunt. I mean, it certainly is direct. But the idea here is, is that the Lord strikes the wicked in the mouth because it's with the mouth that they are uttering all of these various blasphemies and persecutions against David, the anointed. And so here, he doesn't ultimately put hope in his own ability to seek revenge or retribution against his enemies, but puts them in the hands of the Lord to execute this judgment. And I think that you certainly see that in Christ's own ministry, as he could have called down the angels to judge the Pharisees right then and there, but he committed himself to and his ministry into the providential care of his heavenly father. And I think that that gives us certainly a path, if you will, or certainly the model that we can only fulfill in union with Christ, but it instructs us as to how we should react in similar circumstances.
1: There have been some who've said, listen, Christians cannot take that kind of language on their lips. Even recently, I read an argument that said, we ought not to gather all the psalms together, and we ought certainly not to sing those words. I take it you don't sympathize with that way of handling the psalms.
2: Right. No, I don't. Maybe I'm taking things a little too literally, but when it's, you know, when Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all scripture is useful for teaching, for rebuking, for equipping the man for every righteous deed, you know— I take that uh, quite seriously, as I suspect others do as well, you know, that offer a different point of view. But I find it difficult to square such an opinion to say that, well, we shouldn't sing some of these psalms because of the images of judgment that they have or because, for example, they are ethnocentric images of judgment against certain people. And I think we have to recognize a couple of things. First, we pray and say this type of judgment against unbelievers every time we say the Lord's Prayer. When we say, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and that when we pray, Thy kingdom come— When the Lord's kingdom returns, when he comes in the second coming, it's going to be one of blessing for those who seek refuge in Christ, and it's going to be one of judgment. So we may not realize it, but when we say, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, we're invoking judgment upon the unbelieving world.
1: And we're not saying we know necessarily who those people will be. We're just acknowledging that there are such people and that there likely will be such people.
2: Right, absolutely. And I think that there's a second observation, which is to say that I think that we can pray and we can say and sing such things so long as we're informed about this the passage of Scripture as to its meaning and its connection to Christ. But then also, I think it's important that we never pray or sing these songs against any one specific individual. I think it interesting that David, for example, never names names and uh, I suspect it's for the reason that as long as somebody's breathing, there's always hope that they'll repent. And I think it's so vital that we sing and we pray these things, not only because it's Scripture, but because it shows us, the wrath from which we have been personally delivered in Christ. And it also makes very real the wrath and judgment that unbelievers will face so that it encourages us to tell others of Christ. And it also, in a sense, I think, serves as a warning to the unbelieving world that this is the judgment that they will face unless, of course, as it says in Psalm 2, they kiss the son and seek refuge in him.
1: And that son whom they are meant to kiss and that image there is of bowing the knee— Right. And kissing the ring in in holy submission. That son to whom we're calling for submission is he who became incarnate and who obeyed in our place and who is, as the title of the book suggests, the suffering king. So as we bring our discussion to a close, talk to us a little bit about that suffering king and, and how at the end this section of Psalms points us to that suffering king.
2: Yeah, I think it's important. There's a statement from the Gospels that said that Jesus was a man of sorrows. And I think that that imagery is certainly connected, say, to the 53rd Psalm. But we often wonder, what was Jesus thinking? What did he say in his prayers? In what way was he filled with angst or concern? And we can't know that with an absolute degree of certainty, but I do believe that the Psalms, especially those Psalms of lament, those Psalms where we see great sorrow on the part of the psalmist, that's where we can get a window into the heart of Christ himself as he prayed. I think most poignantly, and I don't cover this Psalm in the book, but I do mention it, is that when Jesus was in the midst of his darkest hour as he hung and suffered on the cross, he reached out to the Psalms and quoted the Psalms, Psalm 22. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And that, I think, gives us insight into what Jesus was thinking and how he was praying. And so in that respect, I think that you know recognizing this connection to Christ certainly helps us as the church at large, as well as individuals, to know how and what to say, pray and feel and sing when we find ourselves in the midst of despair. Jesus certainly is a victorious king, but his victory had a path that led through the cross. And certainly that's our own path in that we follow Christ, we take up our crosses and follow him. And then, blessedly, we will know of that victory, but not until we first go through that same suffering path that Christ himself did as he uses that not to somehow merit our salvation, but rather so that we are further conformed to his image and we die to ourselves and live unto Christ.
0: Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.